Welcome to the show. I'm Joe. And I'm Josh. All right. And Josh, we're going to kick this thing off. We are starting a Revelation 1 this week. Yeah, so uh, just a quick word about that. We are going back to Revelation 1 because we feel as though the whole Bible needs to be read in its proper context in order to be understood. Um, the reason we started with Revelation 2 last week was because it was on our hearts to do that. And if the Holy Spirit's telling us to read a particular passage, we are going to do that. So we're going back to Revelation 1, and then we'll be wrapping up today with the back half of Revelation 2. Excellent. Uh, with that being said, this is Revelation 1 out of the ESV. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who who was and who is to come. And from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings of earth. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so. Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, who was on the island called Patmos, an account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit of the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, Write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands one like the Son of Man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs on his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like the flame of a fire. His feet were like a burnished bronze, refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face like the shining sun in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead, but he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last, the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore. I have the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches 
And the seven lampstands are the seven churches. All right. And so obviously we had to read that because there's a, a lot of information in there and it bears to be read and is the only book that opens with a blessing for somebody reading it out loud. So I think that if God tells us to do that, that should be the first way we start this. Yeah, which is particularly interesting to me given that this is perhaps the most avoided passage of Scripture alongside Deuteronomy and Numbers. Yeah, and that's, uh, that says a lot too. I mean, if I was the enemy, I would make a book that promises believers a blessing one that is probably the most feared book in the Bible. Um, and, and this is not only to teach us that this book doesn't need to be feared, but certainly that the blessing in this book is at very least knowing what God has in store for his followers, because these letters that we're about to get into in today and in the following weeks, they're really going to set the stage. And then what I think we'll probably wind up having to do is go back into the Bible before we make it to the next part of Revelation because we're going to have to set a understanding and a precedent for what's coming up because there's a lot of information coming up in the, the next chapters. Yeah, so that note on context that I mentioned at the start of the episode, that applies to the entirety of the Bible, not just Revelation, in a vacuum. So um, once we get done with the letters to the churches, we will be going back into Genesis and other books to provide context for what we'll be reading later. Yep, yep. So uh, one thing I wanted to touch on that we said earlier in the passage was that Jesus is the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of the kings on earth. And, and that's a really interesting thing. And when we go back into the Torah later on, we're going to see the the firstborn um, conundrum here is that Israel likes to bless the firstborn son, but God typically chooses to bless the laterborn sons. Mm-hmm. And I think that that kind of foreshadows what we're saying here. Jesus, firstborn from the dead, it shows the status with the father as the true firstborn son. Mm-hmm. You know, not not a a firstborn in a family, but the true firstborn son who has, has given the resurrection that was promised to the Jews. So that's a an interesting uh, culture, counterculture revelation that we see in, in Revelation. So that's really interesting to me. Mm-hmm. Um, the next thing we're going to see in this passage, uh, we're going to talk about the ultimate victory. Of Jesus, right? He says, they, not only is he the firstborn son from the dead, but he's the firstborn son from the dead and the ruler of the kings of the earth. And that shows that he has dominion over all the earth. Mm-hmm. That's been given back to him. And we'll tell you who that's been given back to him from in the following weeks. Yeah. So, when we're looking at this portion of scripture there's a lot of information you can choose to unpack and and kind of look into piece by piece a couple of things i really wanted to touch on and and josh i think you might see this as well when they say he is who is who was and who is to come Mm -hmm. there's a a very stark parallel in revelation 17 11 um 
and it talks about the Antichrist. Now, we know Antichrist is, you know, Antichristos. Uh, it's the opposite of or in place of the Messiah. Right. And so the beast is the Antichrist. Mm-hmm. And Revelation seventeen eleven, it says the beast that was mm-hmm. and now is not. Mm-hmm. He is the eighth and was of the seven and goes into perdition. Mm-hmm. So that is a a mirror image upside down and backwards of what Christ is. So Christ is in the beginning of his book going, Hey, listen, I'm here mm-hmm. and I am the one who was, I am the one who is, I'm the one who's coming again. I am the ultimate. I am right. And the beast is trying to replicate that. And when we get into the sections of revelation where it talks directly about the beast, there's a lot of information on pack there mm-hmm. with how he's the adverse of Christ, everything that Jesus does, he does it weaker or opposite. Yeah. So. Well, yeah, and the the history that is behind that with him being of the seven, mm-hmm. um, there is a lot to unpack in that one verse, and that's why it, it this might slow down a lot because yeah. some of these passages are extremely dense. Yes. Yeah. You can spend easily a month having a conversation about each chapter. So this is all the brief overview. And like I've always said to people, and this, this goes true for our audience as well. Don't trust anything we say, seek it out yourself, you know, search these things and see that they be true. Mm-hmm. And you, we're just kind of your, your guide here, you know, and uh, I'm just looking to help people to find some things and pull it out of scripture that they may not have seen before because they weren't looking at it with the right lenses. So, um, every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. How, if he's coming back some 2000 plus years later, will the people that pierce him see him? Mm-hmm. That is the question, isn't that it? That is the question. So, is this a revelation of something that might come in the end times? where people that have passed mm-hmm. might see something. I, I don't know this part. I'm just kind of guessing at it because that really blew my mind. I was sitting there reading this week, and I looked at that, and I went, man, how? Mm-hmm. How in the world could the people that have pierced him see him when he comes back? So that's a that's an interesting thing. We're going to mull over in the following weeks here, and I'm going to spend a little bit more time with that. We might we might come back to that later in another mm-hmm. episode, uh, but that really that blew my mind on that one. Yeah. So one of the one of the main, um, I guess you could call it controversies of Revelation, and uh, more specifically interpreting Revelation, is you know how much of Revelation is still prophetic for us, right? And how right. much of it has occurred in the past, how, you know, has, has clearly all of it hasn't happened yet, but, you know, is there a certain portion of Revelation that was more specifically for the people living around 90 to 100 AD? Um, were there portions, you know, it does say this generation will not pass away. What exactly does that mean? All of those things are uh, very important questions that don't necessarily have a definitive answer. So we will be unpacking those, but um, as far as that passage specifically goes, it's entirely possible that there was some revelation given to the people of the day right? that that is referring to. And I think that what's interesting is you and I come from two different 
backgrounds mm-hmm. on eschatology. And yeah. so when I read this, I read it with a, a future view mm-hmm. in sight. And I think that I could be wrong, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think you read it with more of a, a past historical view. Yeah, so with this part in particular, I do see it as something that um, has already happened. I think it's generally a little easier to interpret it that way, but at the same time, there aren't... I will say this. There aren't really any um, salvific consequences to getting that part wrong. Right. Right. It's more so just an interpretation of what do you think the end times are going to look like. And frankly, um, I would like to think my faith in Jesus Christ is strong enough to withstand whatever comes our way if we do live to see that. So, And I think that that's a a very important part you bring up. You know, we're we're good friends, and uh, this is something that we don't divide over. You know, we will have different outlooks in different parts of Scripture. As long as it has nothing to do with salvation or, or any major doctrinal issue, um, there's really no reason to divide over it because honestly, we don't know. I don't, I have never said that I know everything in this book. I would never say something like that. Uh, I just know that God's revealed certain things to me. Mm-hmm. He's allowed me to see certain things. He's allowed you to see certain things, different things. And of course that means that we have a bigger picture understanding of certain areas of scripture this one is one I've just been very interested in, mm-hmm. and it seems like the youth is really interested in it. Um, it's something that I've got middle schoolers that literally ask me to cover on a regular basis. Yeah. So it's it's a lot of fun to think about this stuff and, and to come to conclusions, but we can't be dogmatic about it because this is by far the most difficult to interpret book in the entire Bible. Yeah, pretty easily. I, you know, last, last note on that before we move forward, I think there is a certain sense, at least in my head of uh, disagreement on these passages might actually be better mm-hmm. than agreement because it, you know, it, it forces us to talk about it. Right. And the more we talk about the word of God, the more we're going to understand God's heart. Right. And so like, you know, at the end of the day, do we really strive for any more than that when studying Scripture? That is that is the end goal, is to understand God more and get closer to Him. Right. And if there is some you know minor semantic disagreements that lead to that happening, I'm all for it. Yeah, absolutely. And I think some of our best conversations have been over our disagreements. Absolutely. So, the next thing I wanted to touch on was the white robe. There's a big vision of Christ here and John's sitting here now John background John had just been boiled in oil and Mm -hmm. exiled to the island of Patmos this is not uh you know like a retreat this is not a great place this is a a prison island that he's been exiled to and he was praying in the spirit Mm -hmm. and Jesus came down to to visit with him and, and give him this revelation so this revelation is the revelation of Jesus which I think is important yeah um and I wanted to cover that earlier I forgot to but the revelation of Jesus Christ given to John. Right. Now, if you look in some of the older Bibles, I think King James actually got it wrong too, is it says the revelation of John. <laughs> John John yeah. did not give this to himself. No, so. no, that, that wouldn't, well, first off, that uh, wouldn't be entirely as credible 
no, as not at all. Jesus giving it to him, but <laughs> you know, it is what it is. So the white robe is the thing I really wanted to pick out a description of Christ because white actually has a meaning in the Bible. Mm-hmm. The color white is the color of victory. Mm-hmm. It's a color of purity. It's the color of joy. Mm-hmm. Um, th- this color symbolizes basically the perfection of heaven shown to those who are currently under wrath. Mm-hmm. You know, this is the way Jesus is going to come back, it says in the end, right? So this picture of Christ being shown to John at the beginning of the book is the same way we're going to see him at the end of the book when he comes back with the armies of heaven. Yeah, And so I think that that's really telling to say, hey, listen, I'm going to be clouding this white robe, right? And uh, that means that I have victory, I have purity, I have joy. It's symbolizing, you know, the fullness of heaven coming to earth. Mm-hmm. And and that, of course, happens later on. Spoiler alert, that happens later on in Revelation. <laughs> uh, <laughs> also, the voice like cascading waters, we're not going to talk about right, that right now because that will be back later in the book of Revelation as well. Mm-hmm. And I think that that has more meaning to discuss in those later passages. So... Yeah, this is this is setting up a lot. Um, the mouth that came uh, with a sharp two-edged sword, that also comes back later. Mm-hmm. Pretty much, you'll see all of this later on in the book and given greater detail. Right, and I think that that's, a, you know, that's why we're not going to really touch too, too much on, on Revelation 1. Originally, I wasn't going to cover Revelation 1 because it really sets up a lot of stuff we're going to hear later on but it's going to be kind of redundant to read over and over again over the air. Um, but we really did. We got kind of convicted that if we're going to do this, we need to do this right and, and go back to the first chapter and get that taken care of. But we're also not going to cover everything two, three, four times throughout the book. So we're going to have to pick and choose certain things there. Yeah. The, the last portion of this before we move on to the second half of two is the mystery of the seven stars and the seven lampstands. Mm-hmm. Now, we heard about that last week when we went over the church at Ephesus and their letter, mm-hmm. but the seven stars and seven lampstands are really, really important because he's going to talk about them a lot in the seven letters. Mm-hmm. You will notice a series of sevens throughout this book is... Seven is a number for perfection, totality, completeness, and Mm -hmm. and that's something that we're going to see a lot. So the seven golden lampstands. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand, the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels or messengers of the seven churches. The seven lampstands are the seven churches. So when you see an allusion to stars, you're seeing angels or messengers of the seven churches. Mm-hmm. And then when you see the lampstands, those are the churches themselves. Mm-hmm. So, for example, we talked about Ephesian and the, the church at Ephesus, and they referred to the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. Right. So it's telling you that he's walking among the churches. I just wanted to cover that directly from scripture because it's an important setup to literally the rest of the book so yeah yeah it is and uh the lampstands are talked about in revelation 2 they are also talked about after that i so joe what is your what is your view on this the the churches being not only the literal churches of philadelphia a lot of see all that but also 
um, kind of reflecting the archetypes of churches that we'll see later on, kind of near to the end times. Yeah, I would say certainly. Um, yeah. I, I mean, we talked about the, the Ephesus awakening last week, and I think that not only is it parallel churches, but you'll see that these also parallel states of mind yeah. and theologies. And I think that that was on purpose. There's an old saying that uh, for every word in Hebrew, uh, there's multiple words because you can read it backwards, you can read it forwards, or you can use the numbers. Yeah. I think that the book of Revelation is like that as well. I think that we're going to see apocalyptic, that was easy for me to say, imagery of what's to come, but also what happened in John's time mm-hmm. and what happened throughout the life of the church on earth. So I do believe that we're going to see a a lot of parallels and a lot of loose cords that you can pull at and and it'll tie to different things in the Bible, it'll tie to different viewpoints that we have in the Christian church as a whole. Yeah, well, and I there is also this idea of, you know, God doesn't punish for rules that he hasn't set. You know, and mm-hmm. um with these churches we see every pretty much every possible way that a church body can get it right every possible way that a church body can get it wrong and it states very particularly at the end of each one exactly what will happen if these churches correct what they got wrong and what will happen if they don't mm-hmm. and so i you know i think part of me has to say that part of the purpose of this is so that no one will be surprised on judgment day right like you're not <laughs> There's going to be no, well, God, you didn't you didn't tell us that we couldn't do that. You didn't tell us we had to. No, I did. You remember you, that book you had holding up your table? Yeah. Yeah, you <laughs> should you should have been reading it more. Yeah. I always like the old the old adage that a Bible that's falling apart normally belongs to someone who isn't. Right. Um, yes, it, it is important accurate. to read this book specifically because we have an absolute day coming where we're going to stand before the Lord. Mm-hmm. And that is... It's amazing and wonderful and scary. Yeah. Because I, I got to yeah. think about standing before a holy God, and I am not holy. I try. Yeah. I because mean, of him, that's the only standing I have. So Yeah, read, read Isaiah, read Daniel, <laughs> read any of these uh, Old Testament prophetic works. They're all absolutely mortified oh, yeah. at the sight of a holy God or even the angels and you know i think there is some value to be seen there even though the veil has been torn even though we've come closer to god we still do need to have that reverence uh really present at all times in our lives because if we don't like this is again this is the creator of the universe this is really the only being that has any power in the universe and he has all of the power yeah so you know, we we don't need to bow before Satan because Satan has no power. Right. We don't need to bow before man because man has no power. Mm-hmm. God does, and yes, God loves you. Yes, God wants to be in holy communion with you forever. But, yeah. but we do need to be careful and make sure that you know we're we got our heads on straight there. Yeah, it always bothers me when somebody wears that shirt that says "Only God can judge me." Mm. That should terrify you. Yeah. It terrifies me for them. So, yeah, only God will judge you. <laughs> yes. Um, so, the next part of this is the, the seven angels as well. 
um, the seven angels of the seven churches. What exactly do you think that means? Do you think there was literally an angel inhabiting each of the ancient first century churches? I, I believe that the angel is in reference to the head of the church. So if you're looking at each letter, each one of the seven churches, it says, and to the angel in the church at, mm-hmm. fill in the blank. So I don't believe that Jesus is saying that every church has an angel leading it. Um, there may be a duality there of there is a, a messenger for that church and there's an angel over that church mm-hmm. because we do know that there are principalities and powers in this world, both good and demonic, that are in control of things. So very well, the, the angel could be getting the message mm-hmm. and sending it out. Uh, but I, I believe that directly we're talking about talking to the, I don't want to say pastor of the church, but pro- possibly the elders of the church, because the elders back then held far more power than the pastor did. Yeah, so that that is a theme. Um, and, and the rest of Revelation 2, but also in the rest of the book, there are many times where um, angels are specifically referring to messengers that are kind of insinuated to be human messengers and right. not... Uh, spiritual ones. So, yeah. So, and the stars, like I said, we're going to see a lot of allusions to stars as we go on here, too, and and stars falling to heaven or from heaven, and there's just so much imagery coming up in the book that we're going to have to keep this stuff in the back of our minds as we read through because it's it's some pretty pretty hard-to-follow stuff if you're not paying attention. Mm -hmm. All right, I'm going to read the next letter. Um, last week we read Ephesus, so we're picking up on the back end of Revelation 2 with the letter to the church in Smyrna. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, the words of the first and the last who died and came to life, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested for ten days, you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. Wow. There's a lot in there. Yeah. So, obviously we're beginning with the the declaration of who this is going to, Mm -hmm. and we're letting them know who it's from. Not from John. This is Jesus we're talking here. Mm -hmm. I know your tribulation and poverty, but you are rich. So tribulation and poverty on the earth. Mm -hmm. They are suffering for Christ. But Jesus says, you're rich. And I remember a part in the Bible where Jesus said, in my father's house are many mansions. Mm -hmm. They are lumping up wealth for themselves in heaven by being poor on earth. Yeah. And I, this is the on, one of the only two, I believe, letters in Revelation that don't have a condemnation to it. Mm-hmm. There's, there's no, there are two where, I'm trying to go from memory here, but I believe there are two where there are no condemnation, two that are just condemnation, and the rest are a mix of both. Mm-hmm. And this one is one of those churches that Jesus is like, y- you got it. But here's some stuff to watch out for. But be ready. Yeah, because yeah. there are guys that say they're part of your flock, mm-hmm. and, and they're not. Yeah. They're not. And they're the synagogue of Satan. Mm-hmm. And a lot has been said about the synagogue of Satan. Yeah. 
Um, and this is actually something I disdain. Uh, a lot of anti-Semitism comes from this term. Mm -hmm. And when you're talking about people that have that, that hatred in their heart, I've got to say that I believe people like that are probably a little closer to being the synagogue of Satan than they are talking against the synagogue of Satan. Much more than likely, yeah. 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 Um, as we went over last week, love is the ultimate thing that Jesus' followers are going to show to show that they are followers of Christ. So mm -hmm. if you hate anybody, you're not doing it right according to Christ. Sorry, that's not me. That's him. I don't make the rules. So... Do not fear what you're about to suffer. Now, do not fear is mentioned a lot in the Bible. Mm -hmm. I believe that if Christ wanted us to be afraid, he would have told us to fear more. The only fear I see in the Bible that's positive is a fear of God. Mm -hmm. I, I don't see a lot of fear in man, fear in Satan, like you had said. Satan is a dog on a leash. Yep. He can only do what God lets him do. And really and truly, I think that this, this word here is actually diablos in the Greek. But if you take it to its ultimate conclusion, it actually means the accuser. Mm -hmm. So, behold, the accuser is about to throw you into prison could mean a lot different than the devil. Mm -hmm. So, I would think personally, and I'd be interested to hear what you have to say about this, Josh, but I would think personally that this is a call out to the persecution of this church by men more than the devil actually throwing them into prison. Um, yeah, I mean... In in very practical terms, men have to be the ones throwing them into prison. And I think um, this is this is something that's very prevalent in the American church, and I especially see it a lot in the South. Um, people attribute a lot of their issues to Satan. Um, mm -hmm. Devil made me do it. Yeah, yeah, devil made me do it. No, no, he didn't. Your heart is corrupt, and you did it on your own volition. Right. Don't take your responsibility away from yourself for things that you have done. And also don't give it to the devil. And I also mean, don't give him it credit. to the devil. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, no, the devil's just raking in some free coin right now, I and mean, yeah. we're, we're just handing it to him. But, uh, you know, I, I think, yeah, this is, this is one of those things that um, we definitely agree on. Satan does not have, like, some crazy reality-altering power or anything. Um, and, you know, when it references Jews that are of the synagogue of Satan, it, that literally just means they are Jews that are not Christians that are trying to lead Christians away from Christ. Like, that's what that's, that's, what that's in reference to. And... Correct me if I'm wrong here, but I believe that's that's the people doing that. Yeah. Not Satan. Like, even though they are of the synagogue of Satan, those are still the people doing that. And, yeah, I mean, this, it's the very same thing with this, being thrown into prison. That's what we have to expect, you know? I mean, right. that's, that's what we see in other countries today. Um, we may see it soon here in America. I don't want it to happen, but it, it may. It very possibly could. Um, and, you know, we, we do have to be ready for that, um, just in our souls. Uh, you know, and this is something you can ask yourself. I think it's always good practice to kind of check yourself on this. If that comes, do you believe that you will be able to, as it says here, conquer that? Because that's not going to be an easy thing to deal with. No. You know, it's not. And it's a, a, a very telling thing about 
the over simplification of of what we we do in the church today people think they're getting persecuted if you know you decide to not make a cake and your your bakery gets shut down it, it's terrible but it's not persecution on the level of what christians had to deal with time immemorial i mean he, during the reign of Nero, which is more than likely when this book was written, mm-hmm. uh, Christians were invited to candlelit dinners, but they were the candles. They were the candles. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, this is not persecution that we're seeing right now. We don't see persecution on that level at all in America. But one of the things I think is really interesting here is you'll be thrown into prison that you may be tested. Mm-hmm. For 10 days. Mm -hmm. If it's weird in the Bible, it's probably important. Mm -hmm. What do you think about the number 10? Do you you have any thoughts on that? Um, Not off the top of my head. What do you have in mind there? So 10 is actually one of the numbers of completion. You have 3, 7, 12, and 10. Mm -hmm. And 10 is a symbol of completion for testimony. Okay. So when we're looking at the 10 days, Jesus is essentially saying, you're going to be in jail. Mm Mm-hmm. To give your testimony, yeah, man, that's crazy. It is. I I also noticed um, the sentence after that says, "Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life." Um, a note on the "be faithful" part of this: it says in my study Bible that the city of Smyrna prided itself on faithfulness to Rome. Mm. Okay, so that's. Uh, that's something that's kind of that they would have understood reading that that you know that parallels their own environment. But guys, that's also saying they're not making it out of prison, right? It's you know, not like, saying they're getting they, out in ten days. <laughs> yeah, no, they uh, they they're going to be in prison for ten days, enduring tribulation, where they're expected to give witness, right? Mm-hmm. Expected to give witness to the faithfulness of. Christ and expected to, you know, pull a Paul here and uh, convert the guards or, you know, whatever, whatever that testimony ends up bringing. But the expectation is not that they're going to make it out alive. And that's, uh, it says some of you will be thrown into prison. The rest of them will still be enduring persecution after those people have gone to be with the Lord. Yeah. And that actually reminds me too of a tribulation type movie that I watched when I was growing up. Uh, very hokey movie, uh, 70s, campy kind of Christian movie yeah. uh, called The Thief in the Night. And there is one of the films in that series is showing the believers in jail. And the people who got saved during the tribulation are singing. And it's just such a tremendously silly picture of this. And I, I don't necessarily believe it's going to work out the way they thought it would in the the film, but it created these lasting impressions uh, in my mind because I watched it as a young teenager and it scared the life out of me. Mm -hmm. Um, And, and, but that was in my head because that's right before the main character in in the film gets beheaded. Mm -hmm. And it, it just sat there on me for years, but that's what popped in my head as we were just talking about that. Yeah, no, I think you mentioned that last week when we were talking after the show. And I just now remembered that I have actually seen that. Mm -hmm. And that's a kind of a core (laughs) memory for me as well. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know what? If nothing else, that might have been where my fascination with uh, eschatology started. Uh, (laughs) In fact, I'm pretty sure it was. All right. So we get to move on to Pergamum. Mm -hmm. 
I could spend too much time doing this one, and we've got another uh, another letter left in Revelation two uh, yeah. after Pergamum. So I think we're just going to do a, a basic overview. If anybody wants more on that one, um, they could always you know let us know, and we can possibly do a, a full episode on Pergamum, but mm-hmm. or at least a little special, yeah, a little 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 half hour special on it. The angel of the church of Pergamum write, The words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast my name and did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. That's twice. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold to the teaching of Balaam who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel Mm -hmm. so that they might eat food, sacrifice to idols and practice sexual immorality. Mm -hmm. So also you have some, you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the spirit says to the churches to the one who conquers. I will give some of the hidden manna and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on it that no one knows except the one who receives it, which that has always piqued my interest. Yeah. That one, I, I, I could spend hours just researching, probably never get the right answer to it, but, mm-hmm. uh, you know, you can see what everybody else in the world has said about it, but there's never any hard, fast info on it. Yeah. Yeah, That uh, that's always sounded like a parallel to the Book of Life to me. And... um I think the the hidden manna being there as well is kind of you know like that's the that's the life giving food from heaven that the the Israelites were given. Mm-hmm. So I think there is something to be said about the connection there between the the life that God provided the Israelites while they were wandering in the wilderness and that that white stone um you know potentially the manna is referenced as white coming down from heaven. That hidden stone might as well be coming down from heaven and be in reference to some sort of book of life. Well, there. and now here's a thought that I've had. Mm-hmm. Um, the the stone, if you reference it as a book, as a book of life specifically, there were three things inside the Ark of the Covenant. Mm. One of them was manna. Mm-hmm. Where am I going with this? You know where I'm going with this. I do believe I know where you're going with this, yeah. I I think that that might be an allusion to the the Ark of the Covenant because we've had so many movies um, that talk about where's the Ark? Where's the Ark? Where's the Ark? Mm -hmm. And nobody ever read the Book of Revelation because the Ark is in heaven. I wonder if the Ark of the Covenant isn't being alluded to here as kind of the presence of God coming down to those who, in this case, conquers. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna. Mm-hmm. The hidden manna. Where's the manna hidden? It's hidden in the ark. Mm-hmm. A white stone, a new name. In the Torah, we would get new names as believers. I mean, it's... It's entirely possible. It's speculation, but it's entirely possible. Uh, just something that kind of popped in that I was thinking about as you're as you're saying that, and mm-hmm. something I've kind of dwelled on in the past because I love these letters. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, so, uh, you know, it's it's funny you mentioned that because I think parallelism is one of the, the greatest gifts that the writers of the, the Bible gave us as far as being able to interpret Scripture. And at the end of each of these letters, you see this little this little aside about he who conquers, right? Mm-hmm. He who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. The one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna. It's all, so far at least, it has all been in reference to kind of like what occurs after the final judgment, right? Mm-hmm. With um, with the so like with the tree of life specifically, we know from later on in Revelation that that doesn't come until after the final judgment when we get to the new heaven and the new earth. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So interesting here, we're talking about Pergamum mm-hmm. as the seat of Satan. And I just kind of looked something up because I, I had something in the back of my mind. I was trying to remember exactly what it was. So Pergamum was a center of idolatry. Mm-hmm. Uh, they practiced sun worship. Mm-hmm which was Babylonian in nature. They used the title for their priest of pontiff. So that sounds a little familiar to something that goes on today. They had, their people were called the temple keepers of Asia and they had several gods. The chief among them was Zeus. Mm -hmm. Okay. And this one I think is really interesting. Um, Note that it is still in use today by the Pope. The Pope of Rome currently still uses Pergamum. The Temple of Zeus. The Temple of Zeus. Now, I'm not making that up. I literally just read that on one of my websites that I use, and that just, boom. Now, Joe, we we, we have our thoughts about... Zeus and the Babylonian gods and all that um, in the past. That is very interesting that you bring that up in association with the Pope. I'm sure we'll probably get to that one day. Yeah. But um, it, it also says in in my notes on 210 that uh, the crown of life is likely in, referen- in reference to um, one of the patron goddesses of Smyrna, which, uh, who was named Sibyl or Sibel, something like that. And uh, she was often pictured on coins with a crown patterned after a city battlement. The buildings on Smyrna's Mount Pegos were said to look like a crown. Over against these claims, Jesus offered to give the true crown. So this would, again, be something that the people in the context of the day would understand, being able to see this crown on the mountain. Mm-hmm. And Jesus saying, in the midst of this tribulation, I will give you a true crown, which is more powerful than the one that you find yourself under right now. Right. And uh, and this is going to go back to something that we are definitely going to go back to after we get done with the letters, mm-hmm. um, which is, as uh, Dr. Michael Heiser has called it, the Deuteronomy worldview. I this is really blowing my mind as we're talking about this. And that's why I love these conversations because they get so deep into things that we don't typically think. And I've got your notes from your study Bible. You got my notes. And this is an attack on the gods. This is Mm -hmm. God showing the people that 
here's the God you worship. Mm-hmm. Here's the heavenly host. Mm-hmm. Um, people that you know of and, and gods that you know of, I'm showing you that I am their God, that I'm in charge. And that's kind of what Paul did when he went in and he looked at Zeus. And he goes, oh, I see that you have, uh, you, you, you worship this, this guy here on this unknown God. I know who he is. Yeah. He's the God above all these gods. And we're going to get into that later, but that kind of hit me as a greater Exodus. Because I've always said that that Revelation is basically Exodus 2.0. It's a ramped up version of the Exodus. And the Exodus was God attacking all of the gods of Egypt. So Yahweh was showing the gods of Egypt that they don't count. And this is really, the more you deep, deep dive into these letters, you're starting to see links between each each church and the God that they worship versus Mm -hmm. what God wants to show you like, Oh, you, you want that crown? Well, guess what? I've got a better crown for Mm -hmm. you. So you want your crown on a mountain. Mine is in the sky (laughs) over, over all of the earth. That is really interesting. Um, so I think we went over the hidden manna, so we don't need to really recover that one. Mm -hmm. Um, I think the last one is interesting is, is we're talking about, the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, say, so might yeah. eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. That food sacrificed to idols thing keeps coming up. It does. And sexual immorality has been around since the beginning of time and sadly looks like it'll be around until Jesus comes back. Uh-huh. Yeah. Um, it It would seem to me that this is heavily heavily uh influenced or or heavily driven home by the fact that Pergamum was a place where they like to have these these gods that they integrated Christianity with mm-hmm. if that makes sense I'm trying to put into words what's in my mind right now but it looks like from the text and and from the things I've read on these individual places that a few of these places like to take God mm-hmm. and go, well, Yahweh is our God, but we kind of like this Zeus guy too. Yeah. So what if we just make Zeus and Yahweh into the same God mm-hmm. and we've been making our own God since, I mean, the beginning. golden calf, yeah. Oh, <laughs> you know, well, even then, even before we, that, yeah. Adam made himself God. Yeah. So, yeah, that's um, that's well, that's also the legacy of Rome. So right. we see um, with you know the temples of Zeus and uh, you know like uh, Hecate and all of these different Greek gods that they would turn those into Roman gods, right? right? Um, they would also take the Egyptian gods once they got down to Northern Africa, they would take Egyptian gods and they would turn those into Roman gods as well. Mm -hmm. They just added things to their pantheon. And when they came across this idea of, you know, this monotheistic structure where, Hey, there is one God. He is above everything. Right. And to them, that sounded like the chief God, Zeus. Right. So a lot of times when they would encounter this, more specifically after the Gentiles started to believe in God, because when the Jews were believing in God, they were like, yeah, whatever. 
But um, when Gentiles began to believe in the God of the Bible and it started to spread more in that realm, they did integrate that into certain temple worship, and that led to a lot of early believers being led astray, saying, hey, look at these people, they're also worshiping God. And that was a big part of the controversies that um, Paul and the other early church fathers had to stop. Those were a lot of the controversies yeah. because, like, hey, that's not that's not what we do. Right. Well, and, and you still see that today, you know, um, in in passing, when you look at some of our holidays, they're actually just days that we've repurposed as Christian holidays. I mean, like, like Easter, we know that, you know, Christ came back from the dead, Yeah. but the name Easter, I don't think people know where that came from. The name Easter actually comes from Astarte or, you know, uh, the, the God of fertility, mm-hmm. the, the act of eggs. I, as a kid, I always wondered why a bunny and eggs were together. Cause bunnies don't have eggs. Right. The eggs and the bunny actually represent, uh, the bunny represents fertility. Uh, the eggs represent quite a few different things, actually. When we get into them, we'll be here all day doing this. But when you look at Easter, a lot of the practices of Christianity were commingled with pagan practices of the early Babylonians. Same thing with Christmas, December 25th. I think we said it on here before, December 25th was not the birthday of Jesus. It was the birthday of Nimrod. Mm-hmm. And so, or, you know, one of his 68 other names that he went by. Mm -hmm. But a lot of the holidays that we have as Christians, we've co-opted a pagan holiday and and mishmashed some of their belief structures in with ours to make these myths or these stories. Yeah, so, you know, the, uh, the Holy Roman Empire, right? Um, that that's what the Catholic Church was for a long time and still is. Um, that's because a lot of the Roman traditions have maintained themselves in that Catholic structure. And so when they were deciding on a lot of these holidays, they took holidays that they were already celebrating and just turned them into Christian holidays. And I think that legacy uh, still holds very strong, even though... You know, Catholic influence in a lot of regions has um, started to wane a lot. It's it's it, it is interesting to me to see how the legacy of Rome influenced, you know, the popes and uh, the formation of different traditions, like the um, the indulgences, even right. when that controversy came around right. around Martin Luther's time. Yeah, I just uh, it's funny to see the. Uh the parallels here between what we do in this day, it's what they were doing in John's time. It's what they were doing before. It's almost like we can't just take Yahweh at his word Mm -hmm. that he is the only God. We have to keep commingling gods into the mix to build our own God in our image. Mm -hmm. And it's just, it's got to come to a culmination here. And that's what I think this book really is about is, all right, you guys have been doing this for too long now. And, you know, I I want my family back. Mm-hmm. I think this is the story of God reclaiming his family, his legacy, his lineage, and his people to really truly show, hey, listen, you can worship these other gods or you can worship me, but you're not going to get a chance to mix the two anymore. 
Yeah, well, and we, you know, we we talk about the Antichrist a lot in reference to Revelation, and I think most people are looking for some some figure that will come in the future that, you know, like I, people thought it was Obama for a long time. People thought it of, you know, been many, many, many different people. Um, Adolf Hitler probably is a oh yeah a pretty good example of that. Alexander the Great. Alexander the Great. Yeah, there have been there have been many figures in history that are like this, and I think these are all men that. Um, first off, there's a lot of Zeus worship among them. Oh, yeah. um, Hitler was very very interested in Zeus, mm-hmm. and a lot of his iconography had a lot of occult revolved influence. around yeah the occult and um, the early pagan chief gods uh, such as Ra and Zeus and that's interesting to me because you know we keep looking for this antichrist figure really you know if we think about the word antichrist and what you were talking about mm-hmm. earlier with that it's it's the opposite of Christ it is the it, it is literally the anti Christ and that's not necessarily um, referenced a lot of times in Revelation as one person, but as many people or even kind of a lineage of mm-hmm. people that well, come Paul along that. at different points in time. Yeah, yeah. Paul said that there are many. Or was, was Paul? Was it? Um, I might be wrong on this. Um, who was it that said that there are many antichrists in the world? Um, but then they started talking about the antichrist. I know I've heard that in scripture. I just can't remember exactly the. Uh, the yeah, book that I, was in. Yeah, I know what you're talking and, about. But, but you get the point. It, there are many antichrists in the world, but then there will be the man of sin, is what they call them throughout Scripture. And the man of sin, ultimately... Oh, you got it. Yeah, I got it. It's uh, 1 John 2, 18. Right. I'm trying to find a decent translation of it. Uh, children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard, the antichrist is coming... So now many antichrists have come. Yep. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. John. Yeah. So we're we're just reading more of John at this point. More of John. <laughs> he has a, <laughs> five books in the Bible. So, but yeah. So I mean, he's telling people, listen, the antichrist is coming. But we've got some here now. We, we've got to handle this spirit before it gets out of hand. Yeah. And yeah, I think anti. If you break it down even further, we talked about antichristos, but anti-anointed one. There's the anointed one of Israel, mm-hmm. Jesus, in the flesh, came. And this guy is against the anointed one. Could it even mean that he's against the anointed ones? Mm-hmm. Like, against God's people? Because clearly the Antichrist is against God's people. Very, yeah, very obviously that is, that is their purpose. Yeah. So, um, I think that it's interesting that we always talk about the Antichrist as that person, that one guy. Mm-hmm. But even when we get down to it and read individual letters verse by verse, you're seeing multiple Antichrist figures popping up. And it's it's just like the enemy to, to develop an entire network of people and all of his network combined and all of his followers still aren't close to a third of as powerful as the real true God is. Yeah. So and that's that's always kind of Tickle me that he's really trying to create a network of nothing. It's just a, it's a nothing burger. Yeah, it's it's, nothing. it is the ultimate exercise in futility, I think. <laughs> so let's move on because we are getting long-winded on that church. Pergamon, like I said, we could spend a long time on them. 
And the very last letter in Revelation 2 is the church at Thyatira. Thyatira is interesting because Thyatira, a lot of people believe that Lydia, who started the Philippian church, had a home in Thyatira because she was like, of her time, she was the equivalent of what we would call a fashionista. She was a seller of purple. She had homes in big cities. And she started this little church in Philippi, which was actually a church made of Paul's closest friends. So now we're talking about her hometown. So let's see what Jesus has to say to them. Oh, boy. To the angel of the church of Thyatira write, the words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire and feet like burnished bronze. I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, that your latter works exceed the first. But I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and eat food sacrificed to idols. Hmm. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation, unless they repent of her works, and I will strike her children dead. And all the churches will know that I am he who searches the mind and heart, and I will give to each of you according to your works. But to the rest of you in Thyatira, who do not hold to this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on, I do not lay on you any other burden. Only hold fast to what you have until I come. The one who conquers and who keeps my works till the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron as when earthen pots are broken into pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my father, and I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And wow, that's a lot. That is heavy stuff. And, I mean, I know that your works are, that your latter exceed the first. So he's telling them right out the bat, this is the opposite of, of Ephesus, mm-hmm. where Ephesus had good works in the beginning and they got significant less over time. He's saying, well, you started out doing good things, but now you're doing even better things. Mm-hmm. But you tolerate this woman Jezebel. Now, Jezebel, what could we say about Jezebel? Nothing good. No, she's been around since the Old Testament, so she's old, mm-hmm. um, yeah. old lady, and she's still seducing people. That's a, that's a interesting. Yeah, calls herself a prophetess, mm-hmm. and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice immorality, mm-hmm. sexual immorality, and eat food sacrificed to idols. I can't help but feel like I've heard this at least twice before. Uh-huh. It, it, it's it's a really incredible thing to see how much this comes up in these letters. Mm-hmm. And and so this time it's Jezebel. Yep. All right. And this woman is catching a lot of heat in this letter. So she's doing a lot of things terrible in this church, and the church is letting her. Now, if I'm paralleling that to some of the churches today you can actually see activities like this if you watch the news. Mm-hmm. Some of these people that 
have churches and are incorporating the sexual immorality of the day into their church worship services. Mm -hmm. Or, for example, um, to use something that's more up to date, the baseball team recently that had the Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence come to their show, which is basically a uh, a Catholic hate group, um, essentially, is a... But that that is something like I would expect from a Jezebel, mm-hmm. right? So Jezebel's been around since the Old Testament. She has always persecuted the followers of God, mm-hmm. and this is way back in. Where does she show up first? The story of um, Elijah. Elijah. Yeah. Elijah. Elijah. So she's been around for quite a while at this point. And she's been doing the same thing. Cause like I've said before, the devil really doesn't have a very unique playbook. Mm-hmm. He tends to use the same thing over and over again, uh, which in my book makes him insane. Cause insanity is doing the same thing over and over expecting a different result. And uh, that's what he's been doing. I mean, it's been working for him mm-hmm. to be certain, but yeah. uh, his goal is definitely to keep stumbling us. Uh, I love that. This really shows the patient endurance of Christ. Mm -hmm. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Okay, so first thing we got to notice is to Jesus, sexual immorality is a big deal, Mm -hmm. right? In America, it's like people don't think of it as a big deal. Even some people in the church don't think of it as a big deal, which Mm -hmm. blows my mind. And I think that's telling that they've, as a church, really don't read Revelation very often. Or the rest of the Bible. But it, True. I wasn't going to go there, but you did. <laughs> um, <laughs> but he says, I gave her time to repent. Mm-hmm. I mean, Jezebel's been around for hundreds, if not thousands of years at this point. And now he's like, well, listen, I gave her a little bit of time. Like, and, and by a little bit of time, we're 2,000 years later, and she's still reigning and ruling here doing the same thing. Mm-hmm. And Jesus is like, well, I gave her some time, but she refuses. <laughs> that is patient endurance, the likes of which humans could never possibly have. Uh, yeah, not a chance. I, I think it's the note in my study Bible is very interesting. Um, so it says... Thyatira was an economic center with particularly large number of trade societies or guilds, each of which required members to participate in idolatrous practices to retain membership. Practically, it would be difficult to engage in commerce in the city without being a part of such organizations, so the pressure on Christians living in the city to engage in such practices would have been substantial. Hmm. Um, That is, I'm sure you're probably thinking the same thing. That sounds a lot like the Mark of the Beast to me. Yeah. Um, because, you know, the Mark of the Beast, it says very particularly that that will be based off of an inability to trade, an inability to do commerce. When you don't have the Mark of the Beast, you'll essentially be cut off from that part of society. Yeah. Um, the other interesting note that it says a little bit earlier on is um, the acts of immorality and eating of meat sacrificed to idols are mentioned, the word for immorality is not uh, is used elsewhere in Revelation and does not just reference the literal sexual immorality, but also engaging in illicit intercourse, i.e. the worship of gods who were represented by the idols. 
That's interesting because that's something I, I read a book once called uh, And He Came to Set the Captives Free. Mm-hmm. And it's a story of this woman who was very deeply into witchcraft, paganism, and Satan worship. And she eventually became the wife of Satan. Apparently, now I didn't know this from from anywhere else but this book, but according to her, and this is a true story, uh, once a year, uh, Halloween of all days, Satan comes to Earth in, in a, a physical form and marries a woman. And she becomes the wife of Satan. Now, I don't know how true it is. Like I said, this is one book. Um, and it's an extremely fantastic account. So, I mean, it's it's not something that I'm taking very literally. But that sounds a lot like that. Right? Like the, the intercourse between. And, and that also patterns back to Genesis 6. Mm-hmm. When the sons of God, the angels, came down to the daughters of men. So, that's a very interesting uh, parallel there that we're seeing is it's almost like Satan just can't get enough of the world. Yeah. Well, yeah, he is, he is the king of this place. Mm-hmm. And that also, that also goes here to, to what it says, that, uh, who, who not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan. Mm. So it's almost like a Satan worship going on in this, mm-hmm. this city. Yeah. Very interesting. That is interesting. Um, hold fast what you have until I come. Mm-hmm. And the one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I give authority over the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. Mm-hmm. So the one who conquers and who keeps my works to the end mm-hmm. will be given authority over the nations. Mm-hmm. That's interesting because according to Paul, we're supposed to judge angels. Mm-hmm. And elsewhere in Ephesians, Paul talks about them being the powers and principalities. Mm-hmm. So is this a direct correlation? And as just my speculation just popped into my head, but is this a correlation to possibly talking about those who come out of this awful society? Like you just read, I mean, it's a terrible place for Christians to be. Mm-hmm who are actually able to overcome and come out of this, are they realizing now that they have that power to judge those angels that sin? Yeah, I mean, this is this is an interesting thing. So as far as we see with these um, to the one who conquers parts of these letters, this is probably uh, the most interesting one for me because it's, you know, as when earthen pots are broken in pieces... There is a uh, there's like a, a destructive element to this, and I, I would think of it more as like a disciplinary mm-hmm. um, type thing. But at the same time, you know the, the 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 theme of it, I guess, is what I'm looking for there. It is different than the rest of them. I will give him the morning star. I was just about to get to that. Actually, uh huh. Yeah. And so the morning star is usually in reference to... Well, it's been in reference to both Jesus and Satan throughout Scripture, which I thought was really interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But in Isaiah 14, it says, Oh, how you have fallen from heaven, O morning star, son of the dawn. Mm-hmm. So we're referencing Satan here, and he says, And I will give him the morning star. Yeah. So that's that's a really... I, I, I don't feel like he's going to give them Satan... Like, that doesn't seem like a reward. 
No, uh, no, that, that doesn't sound like <laughs> unless a great he's going to crush reward. Satan, which would be great. It yeah. almost when I'm reading this, it almost feels like, but it, it's coming from Jesus, so it, it, it doesn't seem like it would be. But it almost sounds like God talking about Jesus, mm-hmm. because I know personally that I don't think that most people could conquer this overwhelming society's influence by themselves. It would take the work of the Holy Spirit. Mm-hmm. And so when I look at this, to the one who conquers, Jesus ultimately conquers and keeps my works till the end. Well, Jesus can do that. To him I give authority over nations, and he will rule with a rod of iron. Mm-hmm. As when earth and pots are broken to pieces, even I myself have received authority from the Father. So now Jesus is saying, hey, listen, I've got this authority. And it looks like he's imparting that authority to us. Mm-hmm. But over a quick read of that, you could see where somebody would go, oh, is, that, is he talking about Jesus there? And it's almost like Jesus is giving his authority to believers in this area that are going to conquer. So, so yeah, I, um, this, uh, we've already seen there are a lot of allusions to later passages in Revelation in these early chapters. And, you know, to me, when I hear this, it, the first thing that I thought of was the altar of souls. And I believe it's Revelation six with one of the seals. It's yeah, the sixth seal, I think. And I was kind of thinking like the the presence that the martyred Christians will have during the last judgment when mm-hmm. you know, interesting. Um, you know, we're we're screaming out for uh, the saints that are on earth to come join us so that right, the judgment the can happen, right? Yeah. And that's that's what it kind of brought to mind for me because. To the one who conquers and keeps my works until the end, I will give him authority over the nations. That sounds like judgment to me. He will rule them with an iron rod. Now, the ruling part is interesting to me because that kind of insinuates some sort of occupation. Right. Which I'm not really sure how that would fit into this, but um, I will give him the morning star. If that is in reference to Satan, then um, a the this church Captain. this body of believers right being mm. being a a key part of the the final judgment of satan mm. when he's cast down to hell that's an interesting that is that, i mean that's what this kind of brings forward for me that's that could be wrong but that's kind of the imagery that it conjures ooh ooh there's a note in here uh where it says he will rule them mm. the other word is shepherd which makes more sense. He will shepherd them with a rod of iron. Uh, so a shepherd has a rod mm-hmm. to deter uh, beasts that are coming after his flock. Mm-hmm. But also to break the legs of the sheep that try to stray. Right. Mm-hmm. So if if he's got a rod of iron, that's going to be a much more effective rod than one made of wood. Right. And he's saying mm-hmm. that like earthen pots are broken in pieces. Uh, it's almost like you're going to rule over the principalities and powers and you're able to destroy them, essentially, with this. Hmm. I mean, this is this is why we do this, because I know that we don't know everything in this book, but uh-huh. we really don't know everything in Revelation. Uh, yeah. So, okay, so, but these are cool ideas that we get to but maybe, hash out here. I love maybe this. from the shepherding element, it's, re- in, it's in reference to the churches of other nations. 
like maybe I I would have to I would have to look <laughs> up the the historical elements of Thyatira and what what they did, but maybe that's in reference to kind of being like a um, almost like a theological stronghold, you know, some wow. some like you know keeping yeah. keeping the churches in line. I don't know if there was like a church council that happened there or we'll, we'll have to learn like more this, about it. Yeah, we might have to uh, come back to that next week. Yeah, because that's that is an interesting little thought chain there. Yeah, but uh, as for now, sadly we've run out of time. I would just, I just love to stay here and do this all day. Actually. Absolutely, yeah. So we're gonna close that out, and uh, that is what we've got for y'all this week. Thank you for listening, and uh, we'll be back next week to continue on with uh, possibly the little bit more on Thyatira uh-huh. and. Uh, and then going on to Revelation 3 and covering the next few letters. So Mm -hmm. thank you all. Uh, God bless. Have a great week, and we'll talk to you later. God bless you all.